Welcome to another edition of The Best Business Mind, hosted by serial entrepreneur and author Mark Kramer. Tune into The Best Business Minds to listen to thought-provoking interviews with best-selling business book authors who are today's leading innovators, entrepreneurs, and industry experts from around the globe. Welcome to another edition of The Best Business Minds, where we interview business leaders and academics that write thought-provoking books. I'm Mark Kramer, a serial entrepreneur who consults with family businesses and entrepreneurs. Please welcome today Jackie Insinger, author of Spark Brilliance, which I absolutely love the book, uh, and it's something you really can't put down, and it's actually a book you, you probably need to read at least twice uh, to get the full uh, impact of the book. So Jackie, welcome. Glad to have you. So happy to be here. So let's start off with you telling us about your professional background. Okay. So my professional background actually started, I I graduated, I self-designed a master's up at Harvard in cognitive psychology and interpersonal dynamics. And then this is the beginning of the dot-com era and started um, as a content writer writing personality tests to uncover human motivation. So it was a business school project for a few guys from Harvard Business School. And there were seven of us. Actually, Mel Robbins was one of the seven. Um, we were in a, in a basement in Cambridge and I was writing um, personality tests. And what was interesting, the first one I wrote was What Breed of Dog Are You? Which is actually recirculating all over social media right now. This is January of 2000. And within two weeks, and this is no social media. I remember this is the time where AOL was the only email. And all of a sudden, within two weeks, the New York Times called us and Howard Stern called us and they said, what's going on with this test? It's the most clicked on link in the world. (coughs) And it was one of those like, wait, what? Because you can't track that stuff from ours. People were just copying and pasting this link in AOL emails and taking this test. So within a couple months, um, a venture capital firm in San Francisco called us and said, hey, whatever you kids are up to in this basement, it's getting a lot of buzz. We're going to move you to San Francisco. So wow. we moved out to San Francisco, the seven of us, and I wrote about 100 of these personality tests. And what was so fascinating to me, and I promise this does relate to your question, what was so fascinating to me was why? Why do people love this so much, these entertainment-based personality tests? Why are they sharing them? And what made sense, what started to click was everybody's looking for new ways to understand themselves better, to share about themselves so other people understand them better, and new ways to connect. So it's like, here's another way to know me, to understand me, and to connect with each other. A new avatar, a new color, a new something. And it doesn't have to feel hard. And so that was kind of that big aha for me of this doesn't have to be hard to create more meaningful and effective relationships between people. So I moved to Denver when I met my husband and started a private practice, really how to honor differences and leverage strengths to be more effective teams, to really up-level that dynamic and um, kind of took off from there, really dove into the leadership side of things. I'm a data junkie like you. So studying the data, studying positive psychology, went back and studied neuroscience for business at MIT um, at their business school and really dive into how do you simplify the messiness of people and dynamics and loving working with leaders. Because if you impact a leader in a positive way, that cascades down um, and really trickles out that you can impact 
so many people and bottom line results by just tweaking and refining some simple action at the leadership level. I loved all, all that. And, and, and did you end up on, on this show with Howard Stern? I did. <laughs> How cool I was, was really that? I, I was like 25. I was like, oh, no. Yeah. And Howard, how how long ago was that? That was like three years ago, right? So oh yeah yeah yeah, 20, yeah. yeah. So I'm, I'm almost twenty eight, almost twenty eight, yeah, almost twenty eight years old. Yeah. And did that open up a lot of doors for you professionally? You know what it? Well, I was part of this dot com. It opened up a ton of doors for us as a company at the time, and that's when the funding came in. So for me, it was just you know I you know I was I was young. I was I know I you know I was figuring it out as I went along. But what it was was just really exciting to feel like there's this path. Um, you know, when coming from a self-designed master's as well, I always wanted to figure things out that were interesting to me, and so that was like wow we're really onto something here. And that was really exciting. So I think it was more like an inner path that came out of that more than an outer path. And what, what was the name of the company and what happened with it? Um, it was, it was called Emote at the time. It changed its name to tickle.com and it got purchased by monster.com. Oh, okay, cool. Well, I hope you had a good exit. So I hope that worked <laughs> out for you. Um, why did you write this book and, and how did you end up picking this title? Why did I write it? Yes. So, because I, I thought about it for about ten years before I did. So finally, finally, I, I wrote it. Part of part of the reason, the real catalyst for writing the book was actually twofold. One was, you know, I was working so much with clients one on one and seeing the positive impact that was coming out of that work. I wanted to be able to scale it to other people outside of that one-on-one work, um, just to see how great the impact could be for other people outside, because some of these tools are are so easy to action on, or simple to action on, not necessarily easy, but simple to action on if you know what to do. So part of it was to really um, bring the message to more people. The other reason was, you know, I was doing all the work by myself with all of these clients, and very much like, oh, this is what this person needs right now. And what they need right now. So I had all these tools and action steps in my head. And I really wanted to create a process that builds very intentionally upon it on itself. Each chapter, I call it the 10, 10 facets of brilliance. So really building on each other to create a multiplier effect and a process. So getting that information out of my head into a real process that's sustainable and impactful was, was the, the main reason. Well, it's, it was such an interesting book. How do you define brilliance? Because we hear and read that we're thrown around for athletes, writers, actors, business people, entertainers. So how do you define brilliance? Yes. And, and my favorite my favorite definition of brilliance is the Urban Dictionary. Um, they define brilliance as the term that the British use for everything. <laughs> That's not how I'm using it. Um, I define brilliance as the unique spark in you that ignites your potential and brings others along with you. That's how I define it. And, and, and if, when we look at people that we might know in the public, who would you say is brilliant? Hmm. Gosh, you know, um, you know, there's, so when I'm talking about it as that spark, that sunshine, right. That other people are attracted to that brings out the best. Um, you know, the first top of my mind besides Oprah, who I feel right. like, that she's got that energy that everybody's just magnetized to is um, Ted Lasso. <laughs> I'm like, no kidding. I'm 
the character or the actor? The, the character. Love it's, Ted last night. Just started again. I know. I just watched that first episode of season two last night. And that's why it's top of mind. And I and in my keynotes, I talk about the difference between Ted Lasso leadership and Darth Vader leadership, right? The different feelings you get from those leaders. And Ted Lasso, the reason why I, I think he's the perfect example is he's really found that that sweet spot where authenticity and positivity meet, right? And I believe that's really the place where the magic happens. And so, you know, that energy, that positivity, that belief um, is, is to me that that's, that's that brilliance that, you know, draws people in like a magnet. How do you stay authentic? Because I think a lot, you know, throughout the book, you gave all these examples. And I think, you know, a lot of times when you're working in companies or working with leaders, they say all the right things, but it doesn't come across as real. Mm -hmm. how, how does that, you know, how do you come across as being authentic? You know, that's just such a great question, especially I hear this question all the time. Um, Microsoft Work Index, you know, big study came out in the fall that showed 85% of people say the number one thing they want from their leader is authenticity. And I think that is, it's such a huge number, 85%. And the most interesting thing is the reaction by leaders is like, oh, what does that mean? Right? Like, what does it mean to be authentic? Does that mean that I need to be really transparent, really direct? Does that mean we need a personal relationship? Like, what does that mean? And I think what, what I find when I interview deeper with people around, what does that mean to you? And that's always, I get curious, what does that mean to you is really about that con connection, right? That care, that presence, that connection that I'm really here to listen, to understand. I want to connect with you for who you are, right? And be, have that transparency with authenticity and positivity. So I, I feel like those things kind of come together to create that real connection where people feel valued and seen and heard um, and really show up as themselves. I don't think it means we need to be best friends. I don't think it means that you need to be direct and share things that maybe aren't appropriate to share. It's more about that, that true connection um, and integrity in that. Well, you're, you're certainly right. People think if they're being direct, they're being authentic, but that doesn't necessarily mean that you are, and it can be hurtful, and you have to think about those things before you actually do them. Yeah, and I know that you know people look for that in politicians, and regardless of where your politics is, uh, I think that Donald Trump has done that well for himself. That he's come across as authentic, whether you like him or not. He yeah. said, "Hey, this is who I am," and and that's what it is. And then the politicians who don't act, you know, don't come across authentic people have a distrust for them, even if they agree with their politics. So that's, yeah. and same with uh, leaders and companies. It's the yeah. same thing, right? Yeah, and I think- I mean, Zelensky has done a great job of that in, yeah. in the Ukraine. He, nobody comes across as more authentic than that guy does. Right, right. And I think there's a piece of vulnerability in authenticity that people are drawn to, right? And that, you know, goes into that whole concept of psychological safety. And I think that authenticity is often what creates psychological safety, showing that vulnerability, like, you know what, I don't know the answer to this, or here's, you know, I'm, you know, I made a mistake here, or this is a time that I, that I failed at something. And this is the learning I got from it, but showing the human side, showing that I don't have it all together all the time is part of that authenticity that people really start to trust. How often do you see when people have made a mistake that people, people naturally want to forgive them? So by saying what you just said and admitting to a mistake, 
people uh, now want to surround you and help you um, succeed. But if you don't admit to that mistake, then they really want to tear you down because now they're even angrier about that. And that happens right in, in our everyday lives with our own relationships with people. Yes. And I think it either can make them tear you down or have a fear mindset of, well, if you're not going to admit that thing, then I can't admit that thing. And somehow I have to try to cover it up or fix it or not own it behind the scenes because it's not okay to mess up. So I think modeling that idea of, of course, we're going to make mistakes. If we're not making mistakes, we're not stretching ourselves, right? So in, when we're stretching, when we're pushing ourselves and learning new things, we are going to make mistakes. But if the, the sooner we own it, talk about it and learn from it collectively, the better we're going to be as a team. And so I think really instilling in, you know, a culture and environment where it's okay, of course, we're going to mess up, but the faster we, we fix it and learn and share, the better we are as a team. No question. Uh, you write this, uh, uh, you write this book isn't about positive thinking, I once ran a company based on positive psychology of Penn's Dr. Marty Seligman, who you mentioned throughout the book, and seems obvious based on the word, what is positive psychology, but how do you define it and or how should we think about it, which you write is hard to define. Well, first, I'm super excited to learn about the company you had um, on positive psychology, because I think positive psychology is one of the coolest things. So positive psychology is generally defined you know, as the science of what makes individuals or communities thrive. I like to think of it as the psychology of potential. And the way that I describe it for people is if you picture a number line with negative numbers to the left, positive numbers to the right, zero in the middle. And zero represents our neutral, like our baseline, our normal. Traditional psychology is, you know, the study of the dips into the negative numbers and how to get back to zero, really how to fix what's broken, how to heal what's wrong. And that is so critical and so important. Yet what we forget to focus on is this whole other side of the number line where our brilliance lives, right? Where our, where our potential is. And the reason why zero neutral normal is not a goal is because the absence of sadness is not happiness, right? The absence of sickness is not health. The absence of poor performance is not great performance. So neutral normal is really the starting point where I believe your brilliance and your potential begins. So that's where positive psychology is, that whole positive side, that limitless expansive side of the number line. And we have to dip into the negative numbers. We always do, but it's not stopping at zero, not getting back to the absence of let's, let's push through into this other part and see what, what builds us, makes us stronger, not just fixing what's wrong. People are often, uh, people are often at work, um, not happy, but they don't feel heard, which isn't much different than any other close relationship or partnership people have. You wrote questions you should ask so people feel like you authentically care about them. What are some of the questions leaders should ask so people see that? Yeah, um, it's really interesting. I think we often overlook the simplest questions. Um, and really, to me, it just starts with being curious. We, we, you know, everybody knows the golden rule, right? Treat others as we wish to be treated. And, you know, that works well really is in large societies because it's more of like guidelines for inappropriate behavior, but in real relationships and real interpersonal dynamics, I don't believe it works because who's to say that you want to be treated the way I want to be treated, Mark, like, or how you want to be supported is the same way I do. Or when you make a mistake, the way you want feedback is the way I want feedback. So kind of getting out of that default mindset, assuming that everybody wants to be treated the way we want to be treated 
asking those basic questions like, what makes you feel valued? How can I best support you in this situation? What, may, what does a win look like and feel like to you? How do you prefer feedback? And then after you give feedback, you can ask, is there a way I could have said that differently that you would have you know, preferred? Asking these questions, right? Even with, in our personal lives, like for instance, my son, you know, I've known him since the day he was born. I probably, I feel like I know him better than he knows himself. Clearly not true. The other night he said to me, mom, he's 13. He said, mom, I haven't been sharing personal stuff with you lately. And I was like, really, how come? He said, cause every time I do, you try to fix it. And I feel oh. like you dismiss me. And I was like, oh, wow. What can I do differently? And he said, I just want you to listen. I don't want you to try to fix it unless I ask you to. It's like, okay, thank you. Right. And this is what I do for a living. And so having my son be able to share that with me, thank goodness he felt comfortable enough to share that with me. But my default is to fix. That's how I think if there's a problem, I dive in as fast as possible to fix it as quickly as I can. What are possibilities? What are opportunities? How can I move out of this negative space as quickly and effectively as possible? He needs to let it move through him. He needs to sit in that space, feel all the feelings and kind of brood for a few. And then as soon as he vents, he feels better. But I was going to my default thinking I was helping and it backfired, right? And that happens in all relationships. And often at work, people won't go to their leader and say, you know, I'm not sharing things with you because of how you, you're handling things with me. They just sit and they internalize it and they either don't feel valued, they feel dismissed, they're not getting things the way that they need. So preempting that by asking those questions is really, really critical. Good advice for relationships because it took me 20 years to finally say, to my significant other, I said, is this one of these things I'm just supposed to listen to or you want my feedback? Oh my God, you get it. I just want you to listen. Yes. And it took me 20 years to get that. Yeah, yeah. So always starting when someone has a problem by asking them what would be most helpful for you right now? You know? Also, I think that you're paid to fix problems. And I think leaders feel that they're always that's what they're being paid to do. And if they don't do that, then they're not doing the job. And hence that really doesn't help people out. Just like your kids, as you're raising them, they have to stumble. You can't just throw your body under them when they fall to the ground, just because yeah. you don't want them to get um, injured. They have to yeah. learn from it, right? So you have to do the thing with your people. Yeah, exactly, exactly. Yeah. I'm curious asking those questions. Uh, according to Franklin Covey, 55% of employees report that they don't know their company's mission and purpose. I'm not surprised from my own work in this area. It's because they have these bullshit mission statements that we always see when you walk into the company that look mm -hmm. like everyone else's. Why and how can a company fix it? Yeah, you know, I find there's a lot of misalignment, um, a lot of unclear expectations most people don't seem to understand how their role fits into these bigger pictures and people need to feel purpose. They need to feel meaning in their job and they need to see how it ladders up to the bigger mission of the company. So I always, being clear, clarity is kind, right? And knowing that context is key and clarity is kind, aligning, being super clear on what are the expectations? What are we trying to achieve? How does your role fit into that? How does our team's role fit into that? And really being super clear on expectations. I find that if people don't 
the most of the time when someone says this person didn't meet my expectations, they're not doing a good job. It's because they weren't clear on what those were. And we are left again in terms of platinum, our own default thinking, we are left to interpret what success looks like based on our own experience. And so, so, so many people I know, they do the absolute best of their ability and they're missing the mark because the mark wasn't clear. And so getting aligned from top down and making sure it's repeated, it's clear, we are aligned, asking questions, making sure that people understand these expectations, the clarity, the context, the priorities that all ladder up, I think is so, um, it's, it's not done nearly enough in companies and it's so important for people to be able to succeed. How has leadership changed over the last 30 years? And also, how has the pandemic changed how people are leading? I feel like the pandemic really accelerated a lot of the changes that were already happening. Um, You know, we went from this, like, follow me and you will be on a winning team to this come with me and together we will grow into a winning team from a, you know, a, a more authoritative leader to a more mentor-like leader, um, the human side, the servant leadership. Um, and people really look to work, I find, for a different purpose than just showing up and getting a paycheck. People are really looking for more meaning. They're looking for, for more purpose in their life. They're looking for more fulfillment. They're looking for connection. They want to feel valued. You know, one of a recent study by Forbes showed 66% of people overall and 76% of millennials say they would leave their job if they don't feel valued by their leader. So this feeling of wanting to be valued and seen and heard and belong and connect, people want that more than they want money right now. And so that's, I think, work has become a place to be fulfilled and pursue passion and be energized um, that has jumped up a lot on the wish list for a job more than than just salary. And I think we've moved faster into that through the pandemic and through a lot of questioning our lives and what's important to us and what matters. And I think it really just um, moved that along quicker. I think uh, since the 60s, people have felt this way, but they were felt trapped because you're typically working, your job is in your community, you're within an hour drive of you, mostly 15 minutes to half an hour, and now speed up to 2023. And now you can work for a company anywhere in the world. So now you're not putting up with this bullshit. You know, mm-hmm. if you're not happy with your company in Philadelphia, you're looking online and find out you can work remotely for a company in, in Stockholm, Sweden, you're going to go work for that company. So it's kind of leveled the playing field for employees with employers, because before you were dictated to, I mean, especially people who came after World War II, right? They were told, suck it up. It's a, it's a job. It's not supposed to be fun. But yeah. today, people are, even I'm 62, people my age are like, well, if it's not fun, I'm not enjoying it. Why am I doing it? Yeah. And, and people are willing to take less money to do something that they really enjoy. And no longer are companies, right? Uh, saying to you, when you join us, you're with us for the rest of your career. People know rest of your career can be 90 days. <laughs> you know, it could be, totally. yeah, yeah, people jumping. And so even, you know, to back that there was a study done that said, if leaders cultivate an environment where people are doing more of what they enjoy, there's a 72% lower turnover rate. So you think about, I mean, that's huge. And so finding what's, you know, their spark, people's spark. And that's where I call like that intersection where your talent meets passion, right? Finding that space 
and being able to do more of that and finding ways to do more of that. And in the book, you saw there's lots of activities and exercises to, to help nail down. What is that spark for you and how do you get more of it? So we have some questions from the audience. Could it also be, and this relates to the mission statement, could it also be that most often the mission statement is written in a grandiose language and not in simple language that everyone can understand? Management jargons used in rarely is uh, evocative. It's usually like the marketing department or is asked to write these things and they're not even real. So what's your take on that? And, and what should companies do about that? Because people really do read these things and they want to, they want to um, even share it with other people. Yeah, I agree. I think it, a lot of, you know, it could be a good marketing ploy. It could be this, this is very forward facing, sounds impressive versus this is, you know, important for our employees to buy into and, and, and um, live into and show up as. And so I think if that is your mission statement, that's this. Um, if it is more that's um, more conceptual high level to be able to break it down into actionable steps for people to understand. Um, we have another question from here. Whether we like it or not, some people are more interested in playing games and actually doing something constructive and productive. Sometimes I think clear communication, especially to game players, could be too much to handle. How would you approach game players as an authentic person without intimidating them? It's a great question. So how would you approach it without intimidating them? Yeah, so they're game players and you want to be able to reach them. Uh, and But you also want them to still, you know, interact with you in an authentic way. How do you go about doing that, you know, without shutting them down where they don't have any uh, and get them to stop playing these stupid games? Yeah, you know, I think just being curious, asking the questions and keep taking the questions a little bit farther. Um, at some point, the game playing kind of reaches the wall if it's not authentic, right? So if you're like, can you give me more context around or could you explain more? In, or in this situation, what would have worked better for you? And getting more specific with people and just being more curious Sometimes then you'll get down to the real layer um, of understanding. And often what I feel with the people who are playing games, it's because they haven't gotten down to that layer yet. And so it's more of a facade. And so once you break through that by even just sitting down and being curious and, and trying to have those conversations, um, I, that's what I would do is just keep going deeper into those questions until kind of you break through that wall. You mentioned that developing a five-minute gratitude journal can increase your long-term being by more than 10%, the same impact as doubling your income. Please explain how that works and, and what's it look like? Yeah, so it increases your, your happiness um, at the same as doubling your income. So there are three ways. Um, so a gratitude journal itself is just writing down things you're grateful for every day. There are three ways, this is actually really cool, to change your brain in 21 days practicing gratitude. So I don't know if you know these, these studies, Mark, but um, gratitude literally is the quickest way to physically change your brain and you're building new pathways in your brain through gratitude because you can't um, experience gratitude and fear at the same time. You can toggle, but they 
they don't coexist. So you're building those muscles to move into a place of gratitude, which is in your prefrontal cortex, where you see possibilities and opportunities and optimism and all of those things to get to solutions and, and, um, and better outcomes versus in a fear state where you don't see the opportunities and the logic um, and solutions. So we want to build that pathway into gratitude. So there are three different ways that have been tested, two minutes or less, 21 days. And we're all kind of born either default negative, default neutral, or default positive, the way we see the world. So default negative is more scanning for what's wrong or what's missing. Default neutral is like reality, this is what is. And then positive is really scanning for what's good or what's right. So in 21 days, you can shift one whole level. They say even 80-year-old men or kids in 21 days can shift one whole level up. So these are the three options. The first one is super simple. Write down three things you're grateful for every day. Um, and not like the same things every day, not these big picture things, but really specific. Maybe, you know, the person held the door open for me at Starbucks when I had my hands full, you know, this, you know, I've been waiting for this person to return my call and they did. And it was such a great call. You know, I've got to be on this podcast for a full year, you know, so different things you're grateful for, um, in the day. So two minutes or less, that's the first one. The second one is journaling, um, for two minutes on something positive that happened to you in the past 24 hours. What you're doing is actually reliving that positive event. It's almost like a double whammy of that same event. So you're almost reliving it twice. So it has a bigger impact. The third one is um, the one that cascades the most. It's a, it's a the harder one to do, but it has the biggest impact. That is to text or email or call someone new every day for 21 days and thank them or show some appreciation what you're grateful for for them. So 21 different people, 21 days, I'll put that person in my calendar every day to make it a little easier. Um, and when you do that, what you're doing is you're spreading this positivity out. You generally get some really positive feedback that then fuels you. But knowing, say you reached out to an aunt that you hadn't talked to in five years and you shoot a text like, you know, I today I'm just really grateful for you and I appreciate that time where you took care of me when blah, blah, blah. Then that person might be like, wow. And they interact with their spouse in a different way who in interacts then differently with their coworkers and it just keeps going. So that's a really um, powerful one. But each one, two minutes or less, 21 days, change your brain. I think that makes a lot of sense, especially writing it down because it reinforces it uh, for you. Yep. And you yep. start really looking for that. And it, and especially as uh, life right now seems so dismal between school shootings and the country being torn apart, that finding those things um, makes it feel like that you're, that things are going in the right direction for you, that everything is not uh, dark. Yeah. And because, you know, bad is so much stronger than good in our brains, you know, we default to negativity. It's called negativity bias that, you know, that's how we were wired to keep us safe as we look for what's wrong. We look for what's missing. We look for the threats. And so bad can be so much stronger than good. So imagine even, you know, bad health, right. Feels so much more powerful than good health. You know, that one bad parenting moment where you lost it on your kids stands out over all the good parenting moment. The one fight with your spouse stands out over all the peaceful moments of the week, right? So bad feels so much stronger than good. Studies even show, say you give a talk to 50 people, 49 people say like, wow, Mark, you crushed it. One person's like, what a waste of my time, right? Where does your mind go? That one person, right? So bad is so much stronger than good that 
we have to try to balance the scales. We're never not going to notice the bad. We're not, no matter what, we're not going to forget it's there. But when we start focusing more on what's good and what's right and what we're grateful for and trying to savor that a little bit more, it actually can help us balance the bad a little bit better. I think you're right. Because when I would teach and I'm teaching again now, all I would look at is the bad reviews. Like I got like two, three students who were unhappy and I would be like, furious than my boss did, but you got like one of the highest reviews in the department, but all I could focus on was the the bad reviews. I think mm -hmm. that's um, problematic. The other thing is that newspapers, somebody once tried to start a positive newspaper and nobody cared to buy it. And so a psychologist studied it and found out that the reason people watch the news and read the newspaper is not for uh, getting more information for the most part is to find out somebody has it worse than they do. Wow. And, and that's why people watch when they see a house fire. Oh, thank God it's not me. Or they got somebody got shot. Thank God it's not me. And so, so essentially that helps them get through their day. Um, a question from the audience. We have staff who would give feedback, but sometimes the feedback is not actionable. The staff uh, would then say they do not feel heard because what was suggested was not acted upon. What could management say to this these staff so they would feel heard even when they suggested, even when they suggest was not acted upon? I think that's a great question because trust is really um, tied to if I'm going to you know stretch myself and give feedback, I want to see something's done about it or else how do I trust that you're even listening to me? So I think a big thing is asking when the person gives this feedback. Um, if you know, if it doesn't make sense of how you're going to action it, I would ask, what are some um, what are some things you're thinking about that we could do that would make this better? Do you have any ideas of how we can action on this that would feel good to you? Um, and then, you know, not committing to anything, but let me see what we can do. And then following back up. That is a huge piece because if you go talk to somebody and find out, you know, there's nothing we could do about this and then don't follow up back with the person who gave the feedback, that trust is then damaged. So coming back to the person and even mentioning, you know what, I took your feedback, I brought it to so-and-so, and there's nothing we can do about it at this time, but we're going to, you know, we made note and we really appreciate it. And let's follow up in a few months and see how things are going. Just showing that you are honoring what the person shared is generally um, can go so far. It's the lack of follow-up that is really hard. I agree with you. I'm on the condo board of my condo association and past management always, any idea came from uh, the owners, they just said, oh, that won't work. So what we did, our group, and we've now been running it for nine years, is just say to them, go investigate it and come back and report to us. Is, that, is your idea really executable or not? Turns out half these ideas are, and we just implement them. Then people go, oh my God, you guys are so great. But all we had to do was say to them, go look into it and tell us if this is really doable. And one guy saved us 150,000 bucks. Wow. Uh, yeah, yeah. He said to us, we're paying too much for electric. And, and the general manager said, no, no, we got the best price. But I said, no, just go look into it. If he's right, great. If he's wrong, and that's all we had to do. And after that, people were super happy about the whole thing. Wow. Um, in the beginning of the book, you wrote about that fast rising uh, woman leader who is, uh, who as she rose through the ranks, the competition for top jobs became vicious to the point she was thinking of quitting. And we hear this quite often, especially uh, for women. 
How can ambitious people survive the meat grinder of corporate ascension without feeling they're losing important relationships and their mental health? Yeah, you know, this you're right. I hear this all the time too. And the 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 higher up in an organization, um, I hear the lonelier and lonelier people tend to feel. And um, and you kind of lose that peer group because you're competing for the same jobs. And um, you know, what so much about it is that sense of community that you form lower on and have those authentic connections where you talk about these things and you, you know, commit as people of how are we going to handle this when we get to that point, really getting that transparent, authentic connections made where you say, you know, we're going to be in this position at some point where we might, how do we want to handle this? How do we support each other in the best way? Having those conversations. I also feel grounding yourself, anchoring yourself in what's authentic to you. It's very easy to get caught up in this messiness of dynamics and conflicts that can happen in bureaucracy and politics and being really mindful and intentional about grounding yourself in your own authentic leadership style and your own values and deciding no matter what, I'm going to stand in integrity and making a really conscious decision, knowing that that might happen or kind of watching the, the landscape above you as you're growing in the organization and deciding how do you want to show up? What kind of team do you want to lead? What kind of leader do you want to be? And I think staying true to that and staying grounded in that is always a winning strategy. Uh, question from the audience. You mentioned the best tactic to deal with game players as authentic person is asking questions to get to the deeper layers of their minds and actions. However, normally this is not always possible as normally they shut down and run away when you try to get to understand their motives. Literally, they don't like you to know them uh, better. Do you have any other suggestions when games come to the dead ends with game players to keep them engaged? That's such an interesting question to me because I'm having an inner conflict listening to that question around, is this the right employee? Um, if somebody is playing games and I'm curious around like, what, what kind of examples of playing games is that? Is it malicious? Is it harmful to other people? Or is it just somebody who's protecting their personal space? Um, and that it might feel like they're disengaged or not wanting to engage. And so I think the question in my mind is intention. If if somebody doesn't have good intentions and is playing games in a, in a manipulative way, then I would start questioning, is this the right person to be on the team? Um, because, you know, 90% of work stress is caused by 5% of the people and a person who's bringing toxic behavior just poisons performance and commitment. So, that's something that's standing out in my mind is questioning what, what types of games are you talking about? Um, or is it misinterpreted that a game is really just guarding themselves? And I think it's fair if somebody isn't wanting to get too connected or is looking at it more like, I'm just going to show up and do my best work and go home. And I think that's okay. It's more about what does this game playing mean and what's the intention behind it? Mark, do you have a different response to that? I I think the same as you do, but I, I, I'm for, I've run over 25 startups. You talk to them once or twice and then they've got to go because now you're wasting too much time uh, on them and it's affecting everybody else. And people look at you as the leader. And if you give this person too much runway, then they start losing faith in you as a leader and don't feel that you've got control of the situation. And so 
that person's just not going to fit your culture, your business, whatever. And they might not fit anybody's business. So yeah. they've got to go um, and, before yeah. it spreads. Yeah. And I'm I mean, you see that in sports, right? Like we had Terrell Owens play for the Eagles and he divided the locker room and they had to get rid of him as talented as he was. He had to go and every team thereafter had to get rid of him because he was a cancer. Yeah. And it's interesting because I just had a meeting with a CEO last night, like an urgent last minute meeting with a CEO who one of their highest performers, C-suite executives is really political, got a 360 back and it was terrible from the leadership. It's like, but we can't afford to lose this person because of their performance, but we can't afford to keep this person because of their toxicity. So it was one of those conversations around around the same exact thing. And so it's, you know, what we find is it's easier to let somebody go if they're not a good leader or playing these games and they're not the best performer where I see people run into conflict is like, oh my gosh, can we do okay without this performer? And yes, you can always, you know, because somebody who's a top performer, but is toxic, it's changing everybody else's performance. And you might not even see it because of that stress level that's going on internally for these other people. Sometimes as soon as you kind of pluck that toxic, like that toxin out, everybody else's performance goes up. I'm with you hundred percent. My feeling is uh, if they died, what would we do? And that's how I look at it. And so I just get rid of them yeah. and say, we'll somehow we'll get through, we'll pick up whatever they were, people like our product or service, whatever mm -hmm. it is, but it's not worth being in, just like uh, being in any relationship. If you're in a negative relationship, no matter how good looking, smart, interesting they are, uh, you feel sick at the end of the day, just being with this person, it's time to uh, jettison during your life. And, and then the company, it's even more important because so many people are affected, right? At the end of the day. Absolutely. What is platinum leadership methodology? And you compare it to sparklers uh, we use on the 4th of July. So explain that because that's really had a big impact on you. Yeah. So, you know, back to the platinum rule, right? Treat others as they wish to be treated. I feel like there's this thread, this common thread through being this platinum leader, which is a leader for the people you, you lead. How do we motivate these people? How do we show them that they're valued? How do we create these collective wins for the team? And really just tapping into and tuning into each person's unique brilliance and leveraging that. So platinum leadership is really being able to tune into and elevate and then leverage this collective brilliance on your team. And there's very specific strategies to do that that don't take a lot of time and aren't complicated, but you just have to do them in a certain order in a certain way. And the way that fireworks is this cognitive diversity, right? These different perspectives, these different brilliance, this different, um, different ways of thinking and skill sets that are like these sparklers, right? And what the beauty of a spark, a sparkler is, is that all these different bright lights are popping out that are that are unpredictable, right? That we don't know, and each one alone is okay. But when you put it together in a sparkler, it's that beauty of all these different lights going off together is what creates this incredible effect. And as the leader, you get to be the light that that ignites all these other sparklers, right? That's your job. And you know, there's a quote by Buddha that I love is. Um, one single candle, you know, can, um, or what is it? Uh, what is it? One, the, the light of one candle can light all the other candles and that candle's life will never be shortened. Um, and I'm, I'm botching his words, but it's, um, it's something about that, that your, yours will not be shortened no matter how many other, you know, flames do you light. And so I, th I, that's what I think of the leaders, the leader's role is you get to do that. 
uh, question from the audience. Enjoying this conversation very much. Sounds like the key to achieving brilliance in each employee is to make sure they are in the correct seat on the bus, uh, which I forget the name of that book. Uh, what tools do you use to make sure you have the right person in the right seat? So what do you tell your clients about that? You know, I think that's a great um, that's a great question. So there are a few activities I, I do with people to really find that spark, right? And first, asking questions, even the basic ones, like what are your goals? What you know? What do you enjoy doing? Project reflection questions, even after you're done. Of what part did you love? What part really frustrated you? If you could have done one of these things more, what would you have chosen? Right? Just asking these questions that maybe they don't know the answers right away, but they start to reflect and see those things. Another thing that I do is a calendar audit, super, super fast. We all have this, right? We open our calendar and you look at your calendar and you have a physical reaction, like without thinking, right? You have a gut reaction to what things you have for the day. Some of them you're like, oh, I have that today. Some of them you're like, oh, I have that today. And some of them are just neutral, right? So looking ahead at your week, tell people to color code it. It's what are the things you're excited for? Color code in your favorite color. The things that you're dreading, put a color you don't like, things that are neutral, put a neutral color to you and start noticing these themes throughout the week. What are those things that light you up? What are the things you're excited about? And start pulling the threads between them. Sometimes it might be, they're all you know client meetings. I'm loving talking to new clients. Sometimes it's like internal mentorship things. Sometimes it's brainstorming. Sometimes you'll, you'll see, is it just deep work time? What are the things you're most excited about and how do we get you to do more of that? Because when you're in that zone, when you're energized by your work and you're good at it, right? It has to be both. Um, that's that sweet spot where you're energized and your work performance just goes up. Doesn't mean you're going to be able to do it all the time, but just figuring those things out and doing more of that is where people really thrive. So starting to notice those things is really important to help build the right seat on the bus. I see you believe in a lot of structure, you know, like when you're uh, putting things on paper and color coding and everything, why is having a structured process so important? Well, first of all, I'm extraordinarily unstructured as a human. So for me to be able to cut, get to quick conclusions, I have to force myself to structure or else I might just be more free flowy and impulsive. So knowing that there's a way to simply look at something to make sense of it more quickly, I think really helps to get a clear outcome. So anytime, um, I, I, what I find too is leaders greatest challenge and greatest asset is time. Leaders don't have time. I don't know any leader right now that has time. So how do you simplify things to take a minimal amount of time with a maximum impact or ROI? And so that's why the more that we, I've created these, these simple structures to do things quickly, the quicker you can get to an outcome rather than think about this for a couple of weeks, sit with this for a while. Nobody has time for that, right? So if it's like, sit for five minutes, color code this thing, pull out those themes and name three things that you found from this commonality, right? It's a structure, it takes five minutes. You can do it quickly and get to an outcome. So that's why I try to do structures to simplify and minimize time. I think it makes a lot of sense. Um, there's a section in the book called Understand. And you talk about business partners who look at things totally different and weren't listening to each other. This is a common occurrence that we see all the time, hence why so many relationships fail. Please talk about the fintech guys and how that was solved. So kind of give them a little bit of an overview of this and what happened there. Yeah. So Dominic and Max were co-CEOs of a company, um, a client of mine. And um, 
they, they, uh, they were best friends and had worked together before. And they were very opposite, like super complimentary. We've got one of them. who's like this big picture, um, solution oriented, very entrepreneurial brain. The other one is very much like data driven, numbers focused, risk averse. So great complimentary partners. They got into a situation, the first speed bump, pretty big speed bump they hit in their business. They were losing some big accounts and the one who was very structured numbers focused is like, we need to lay people off. And the other one was like, absolutely not. We need to keep our people. We can't lay people off. And they just couldn't even talk to each other. They were so stressed out. They were both like yelling all the time about their own opinions on things. And I would always have them on, on, I'd have them sign into their zoom and from different links so I can mute them because they were just talking over each other. Wow. It was like, nope. And I would have to mute them. And I was trying to build this bridge between them. And what we found was they both wanted the same exact thing, but they weren't speaking each other's language. They weren't communicating the way that the other one needed to hear it. So when I was talking to Max, this big picture guy, I was like, what do you want from this? He's like, I don't want to lay people off. And I want to make the amount of money we need to make to, to, to be able to not lay people off. And I was like, all right, so who's the one who can give us that, that data? the data guy, right? So talk to him. I'm like, what do you want? He's like, well, if we, if we don't make X amount of money, we're going to have to lay people off. Well, have you told Max how much money you need? No. So we got him on the phone and realized, you know, what is, what are your, your strengths to each other? Let's start with acknowledging what your strengths are. Realize we're on the same team, like a football team, right? Offense and defense. You know, one was playing offense. One was playing defense of these two guys, but they're on the same team and they're both trying to win the game. So their approach is very different. One's very protective and the other one is very much like proactive, but how do we do that when we know we're going for the same goal? So they talked in those terms of this is what we need to make in order to keep our people. And then they got to brainstorm of, all right, what's our plan to do that? And let's see if we can make that amount of money in X amount of timeline to save these employees. And it was a beautiful thing when they realized, wait, we're both on the same team. We're just playing offense and defense. We have the same goal. What are the numbers? And what do I need to do to keep the people with those numbers that we need? And it was, a, and they aligned and they actually were able to do it. They didn't need to have layoffs. But they they had a whole new business development strategy that launched from that conversation to be able to make enough money to keep the people. And how about them as a as a working partnership? How'd that work out? You know, they're they're they have a good working partnership. They have to consistently remind themselves part of what makes us want to strangle each other is the same part that makes us great partners. We see things from completely different angles, right? One is trying to fill the bucket. The others want to make sure that the bucket doesn't have a hole in it. And right. so as long as they're both doing their parts from a best self place, it's a beautiful relationship. It's when they start focusing on their own perspective and not the others is when things fall apart. So it's just keeping reminding them of communicate the way that the other one receives your message. Because I can say something a hundred times to somebody, and if it's not the way they need to hear it, it doesn't matter. It's a waste of time. So I need to understand how do you actually receive my message? And if I can tailor my message the way you need to hear it, then we're usually pretty effective, right? And that's why 90% of marriages, you know, the ones that fail, 50% that fail, for fail 90% of the time for that particular reason. Yeah. Uh, I have a friend who, when you are talking, uh, is nodding their head. You know, when I'm talking, he's nodding his head. And for years, I thought this nod indicated agreement, but found out later 
this nod just meant he was listening. Mm -hmm. I've seen other people do that as well. And I asked them if they're nodding in agreement or are they agreeing with me? Am I handling this right or should I do it in a different way? No, I love that. I love the idea of asking them. Oh, I always recommend just always ask, just be curious and ask. So at the beginning, just when you notice, be like, okay, I'm curious. Are you, and, and I always say, just start with, I'm curious. So people don't think you're accusatory or putting somebody down or criticizing. It's more like, Hey, I'm curious when you're nodding, are you nodding because you're listening or are you nodding because you're agreeing with me? But I always say like, start with, if the person might get offended by what you're saying, I always say, start with, I'm curious. I, I have to tell you, I wish I had uh, gotten that piece of advice a year ago with somebody I was coaching and they had this picture and she was a psychologist and the picture looked like more like match.com. And I said that to her and I could have said, why did you choose this picture? Mm. That would have been the smart move because she was offended by the fact that I said it, but I then showed her five other psychologists. None of them had a picture like that picture, but what she meant by it was for people to feel comfortable. Mm. And I showed other people, I go, oh my God, that's not what a psychologist, what they should be having on their website. But I could have asked it in a different way that would have still got me the same result. Yeah. So I yeah. think about that all the time now. Yeah. Um, you deal with a lot of leaders. And as you write, there are many different ways to lead. I've worked with a CEO that like to play uh, subordinates off against each other, thinking the competition will get the most out of them, which I don't agree with. Is there a style you have observed that's detrimental? Yes that one. Um, (laughs) There's, you know, there's a lot of um, some kind of more old school leaders that I've seen that have a fear-based leadership style. Yeah. Right. Yeah. um, And that to me, you, you might get people to do what you want them to do, but you're not getting the respect and engagement um, and performance that you could if you didn't use a fear-based tactic And we've seen that over and over again, that, you know, even in parenting, right? If a kid's scared, they might do what you tell them to do up front, but behind the scenes, right? That's not what's really going on. And it's not a true respect and connection. And we know, even we started the conversation, right? Authentic connection is what 85% of people want and people want to feel valued and they leave if they don't. So starting from that fear-based or setting people up for competition rather than authentic connection where people feel valued and inspired and motivated to do a good job because they feel cared about and valued in the organization, it's going to backfire. So it might work for the short term to get results, but it's not going to work for the long term, especially now when people feel comfortable leaving jobs. And don't the smartest and brightest just walk away? Like, who's going to put up with that crap anymore? You know, you're not stuck in the small town or your region. There's so much opportunity that only the people who can't get jobs end up staying. Yeah. And your performance will go down. People don't tolerate it anymore. And so I'm finding, interestingly, a lot of leaders um, that have that old school approach are coming to me to say, okay, what do I need to do? Like our retention is not good right now. You know, people, our engagement scores are terrible. You know, what do we need to do? And so seeing that because people have other options and because of virtual opportunities, these leaders that did feel very confident in their leadership style, like just suck it up, right? This I'm paying you to do your job and that's all you should get from me that I'm seeing a big shift because they need to. And it's, it's great to see as long as they're actually going to do the work. 
No question about it. Um, you, uh, what's the difference between a connection and communication and what are the ground rules for great communication? Yeah, connection's more the feeling, right? Communication is how we bridge that that relationship between two people to make it effective. And so I have a lot of ground rules for communication and I always have leaders run like kind of a, even a team meeting around what are our ground rules for communication. But I, you know, a few that I, I think are really important. The first one is assume best intentions. If you assume best of intentions from other people, that's where you have the ability to get curious rather than defensive, right? So if you don't assume best intentions, it's really hard to connect. It's really hard to build bridges and it's really hard to get along. So the first one is, unless you have a really big, important reason, which is another reason, to, something else to deal with if, if somebody doesn't have good intentions, let's assume best intentions on a team. Um, second one is to be curious. Always be curious if somebody does something that you don't like, that pisses you off, um, that makes you feel hurt, be curious. Why would maybe that person have done that, right? Getting out of your head, assume like different perspectives, alternative explanations. The, sec the third one is listen to understand. Many of us listen to respond or to decide if we agree or disagree, but really truly listening to understand leads to much more effective communication. Um, assume, um, not assume best intent, um, have, um, what's my next one? Um, all voices heard. That's a really important piece. It doesn't mean consensus and decisions. That's not what I'm talking about. It means all voices are respected and heard. Some people have loud voices and speak up quickly. Some people are more thoughtful um, and analytical and it takes them a little more time, but all voices should be valued on a team. And research shows that if somebody, 19.5 out of 20 times, people will disagree and commit to a decision as long as they feel their opinion was heard. Even if it wasn't theirs that was chosen, it's like, I will buy in and commit as long as you heard me. And so that's an important piece, all voices to be heard. And the last one is judgment-free zone. Um, and that goes into psychological safety is creating an environment where people can share opinions, challenge an initiative, bring up a new initiative, say, I don't know, or I messed up in an environment where there's no shame or judgment so that people feel safe to come up with new ideas. And that's where innovation happens. That's where you really encourage courage through that judgment-free zone. Yeah, and, every, and many leaders will say there's no uh, bad idea and they have to kind of stick to that and not make people feel bad about it. Mm -hmm. uh, you write that uh, you focus on your client's motivation, outlook, interpersonal connection. What are you looking for and what would concern you that your client is going in the wrong direction? Yeah. Um, with with motivation, if people don't feel the wins, motivation goes down. If you, that's why I think as a leader, it is so important to find these small wins, to find, I call them your first downs, right? That's how you football, right? Every 10 yards is a new time to celebrate. And that's because, right, everybody needs those first downs. It's called the goal gradient effect. And the closer you are to the finish line, the faster you run. So we need to create more finish lines. We need to create more first downs. And when people don't see or pause to reflect on those first downs, it just feels like we're checking things off a list. And when you're not making progress, your happiness and performance goes down. So building in that progress and those first downs and making sure people feel those small wins to keep them motivated is really key. From the outlook piece, if people are defaulting to negative more, if they don't see those opportunities and solutions and they're focusing on all the time what can go wrong or what's missing, that's an opportunity to help with that outlook piece because sitting in that space is where you're not gonna to make progress or get to those solutions or innovation. 
What was the last one you said? Interpersonal connection. Yeah. Yeah. Um, you know, our oxytocin in our brain is our bonding hormone. That is often where we get to the place where our stress levels go down, where we can handle stressors better, where those connections come into play, where our performance goes up because we feel committed to something bigger than ourselves. That is such a key piece. So making sure that you build in time for those connections, for those relationships to flourish, especially in a hybrid or remote environment. I always say the magic happens in the moments, not in the meetings. And when you're not having moments because you're remote all the time, it's really important to build in opportunities for moments to happen so people can form those true authentic connections. Jackie, the hour went by so fast. I so enjoyed it. Uh, and the year went by fast. It took a year to get here and, and we're booked until April of next year. So we look forward to the next book that you write and we hope there'll be more books that you write. And um, again, we thank you for taking the time to speak with us today. Thank you so much for having me. This this felt like it was like eight minutes. Yeah, me too. <laughs> Enjoy your weekend. Again, it was a pleasure to meet you. Everybody have a wonderful weekend. We'll see you next Friday. Thank you. Thanks, Mark. Bye-bye. Take care. Thank you for listening to another episode of The Best Business Minds. Tune in every Friday at 12 p.m. Eastern Time for our live recordings. Go to www.thebestbusinessminds.com for more information and follow us on LinkedIn and Twitter to be kept up to date with our upcoming guests and other bonus material. See you next time.